Halches, Tony Generaltes, a Guinea Core Iliok, Erin Gatel Chiesto, Hussan Down, or a Methane Shalif, August Mutte Kalura Maragurtu, Shock the Bleen, Convinciunigineth, August Kamalishin, Ismail Buikis Aguala, Limo Dwyer, or Druni Concrisha Dergenehirin, August Kahila Petkeria, Sutton Kuritum Lord Livenu. Ambassador, Attorney General, dear friends, all of you, because you are all involved so much in humanitarian actions. May I welcome uh, members of the International Committee of the Red Cross who are here today for today's event. And as I have just said in Irish, I have to take this opportunity of congratulating the Irish Red Cross on the 80th anniversary which celebrated recently, Tres Liam Liv as we gather today to commemorate the Geneva Conventions, I'm sure that it strikes you all as participants in humanitarian action as much as it strikes me as nothing less than a moral outrage that in recent times, and yet again, our boundless capacity for creativity and innovation and the fruits of new science and technology are being turned not to the promotion and preservation of peace, but to the pursuit and prosecution of war. It has been so clear to all that any reading of modern history suggests that the outbreak and recurrence of conflict and security threats can only be prevented by addressing the root causes. And in that we are failing, be it in relation to global poverty, be it in relation to the completion of so many projects to which the world community has committed itself for a long time. If we are to address this, it demands political imagination moral courage, peer-reviewed independent research, financial commitment and tireless determination. It also demands that the debate and our path forward, and I so wish you well with what you're discussing, must not be led, influenced or ever determined at any stage by those with vested interests in the arms race. It is one of the contradictions of our time that I as President regularly encounter is that those who often speak of peace in fact, actually are racing to be in the list of those who are selling armaments. We must all collectively have the courage now to ask how we have come to be losing this discourse of peace and how we have come to accept the inevitabilities of such connection between ecology, economy and society that has served us so badly that has put the planet itself at risk and with such destructive consequences and being positive, we must combine our efforts to achieve the alternative, the widespread adoption of a new paradigm of sustained peace and development. I've just come back from visiting three countries in Europe. I've been at the United Nations about a fortnight ago. And it's very interesting to see how the politics of fear and issues of security and military expenditure, in fact, so dominate the discourse and how frail now is the space that is allowed for discussions of peace. The Geneva Conventions, the 70th anniversary of which we're marking today, are generally regarded as the cornerstone of modern international humanitarian law and are recognised as the most important treaties governing the protection of people in armed conflicts. They are among the very few international treaties that have been universally ratified enshrining the principle as they do, that even wars must have limits. The conventions comprising their four treaties 
plus the three additional protocols, have extensively defined the basic rights of wartime prisoners, both civilian and military personnel, established protections for the wounded and the sick, and established safeguards for the civilians in and around the war zone. The treaties of 1949 were ratified in whole or with reservations by 196 countries. Thus, they are good foundations on which to establish new initiatives to deal with current circumstances, and I so wish you well with that, and it is a necessary consideration and reflection. The history behind the Geneva Conventions is well known to all, but it's worth recalling again how a Swiss businessman, Henry Durant, went to visit wounded soldiers after, ba- after the Battle of Solferino in 1859. Shocked by the lack of facilities, personnel and medical aid available to help these soldiers, as a result he published his book A Memory of Solferino in 1862, which outlined the horrors of war. His wartime experiences inspired Durant to propose a permanent relief agency for humanitarian aid in times of war, one enabled by a government treaty recognising the neutrality of the agency and allowing such an agency to provide aid in a war zone. The former proposal led to the establishment of the Red Cross in Geneva. The latter resulted in the 1864 Geneva Convention, the first codified international treaty that covered the sick and wounded soldiers on the battlefield. In August 1866, the Swiss government invited the governments of all European countries, as well as the United States, Brazil and Mexico, to attend a diplomatic conference. Sixteen countries sent a total of 26 delegates to Geneva. The conference adopted the first Geneva Convention for the amelioration of the condition of the wounded in armies in the field. Representatives of 12 nations signed the Convention. Some decades later, inspired by the wave of humanitarian and enthusiasm for peace which existed then following World War II and the outrage towards the war crimes disclosed by the Nuremberg trials, a series of conferences were held in 1949, reaffirming, expanding and updating the prior Geneva and Hague conventions. All of those present would have had the horrors of the Second World War at the forefront of their minds. The unimaginable loss of life, the deprivation and cruelly inflicted what was inflicted upon civilians, which was the development in World War II, and above all, the genocide that was the Holocaust. The preceding years had exposed the very darkest depths to which human nature could descend in a world in which societies had lost their humanity, their empathy. And those delegates in Geneva met in a shattered world one under the shadow of the Cold War. However, these delegates met with the steely determination that these horrors could not be repeated. Would that they had been successful. The 1949 conference yielded the four distinct Geneva Conventions which we commemorate today. The first convention dealt with the treatment of wounded and sick armed forces in the field. The second convention dealt with the sick, wounded and shipwrecked members of armed forces at sea. The third convention dealt with the treatment of prisoners of war during times of conflict. Finally, the fourth convention dealt with the treatment of civilians and their protection during wartime. None of this need have sounded strange to Irish ears, for here in Ireland we can lay claim to a more ancient set of humanitarian accords, the Con Adumnoin, 
sometimes known as the Law of the Innocents, which were agreed at the Synod of Burr in 697 Anno Domino. Promoted by Adomnon, the ninth abbot of Iona, these laws aimed to guarantee the safety and immunity of non-combatants in conflict. And it is very interesting in cross-cultural studies how, in fact, that basic impulse to protect the innocent is there in so many, so many, in so many cultures and indeed belief systems. But what ties together these ancient Brehon laws, the work of the Irish Red Cross and the Geneva Conventions? is a belief in the irreducible dignity for which humanity stands, a symbol of the desire of societies to protect the innocent, uphold justice, and live according to an established code of conduct. As I say this, I realise as well how this must not be just an aspiration, and one must have the courage to realise where it is being contradicted in present times. This principle of an assumed shared humanity is at the heart of the Geneva Conventions. And they in turn have of course been instrumental in making the world a safer, more secure place for the last 70 years. Thanks to these conventions, millions of civilians have lived safer, happier lives. We've all benefited from a more stable, prosperous, peaceful world as a result to a certain degree. When international humanitarian law is respected harm to civilians is drastically reduced. We see the impact of the Geneva Conventions on a daily basis in areas of conflict and contestation, when a wounded person is allowed through a checkpoint, when civilians are spared, when detainees are treated humanely or permitted contact with their families. Although, again, as I speak, I realise about the increasing reports of torture which are emerging weekly. The success of the Geneva Convention lies in both the ability of combatants to understand them and the willingness of combatants to adhere to them. Both knowledge and political will are vital. If we lose either element, the conventions lose their effect. In this regard, the work of the Red Cross movement has been vital. So I do want to pay a special tribute this afternoon to the work of the Irish Red Cross as well as marking the 70th anniversary of the Geneva Conventions, we are also celebrating, as I've said, 80 years of the Irish Red Cross. And during this time, your work has touched the lives of thousands of people at home and abroad, and you've made an extraordinary positive impact. I remember as well something which is very important. Your valuable work in tracing lost relatives where people have in fact been broken up into different camps fleeing from conflict. I do think as well that I want to commend the work of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Your staff work tirelessly around the world, often in some of the most difficult conditions imaginable, in order to promote international humanitarian law and provide protection and assistance to populations in greatest needs. Your goals resonate very strongly with those of Ireland, above all the desire to protect the most vulnerable and reach the furthest behind. And I pay tribute to all those organisations and those Irish NGOs who are working with you. And how pleased I am uh, that shortly I will present the Florence Nightingale Medal to Vivian Lusted, um, who over really over two decades has served in 13 missions in some of the most dangerous places. Although warfare has changed dramatically, 
Since the Geneva Conventions of 1949, conflicts have become more protracted, more urban and more fragmented. Yet the conventions are still considered to be the cornerstone of modern international humanitarian law. They protect combatants who find themselves horse to combat, and they protect civilians caught up in the zone of war. These treaties came into play for all recent international armed conflicts, including the war in Afghanistan, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Chechnya, the 2008 war in Georgia. The Geneva Conventions also offer some protection to those affected by non-international armed conflicts such as the Syrian civil war. As I mentioned, for example, the invasion of Iraq, I'm thinking of a dear friend, Margaret Hassan, who, kidnapped after the fall of Fallujah, somebody who worked with young children and their spinal difficulties in Baghdad, and so forth, and whose body was never found. Theresa Boris, a caliph whom I knew, whose body was discovered, and the eight women who were released and managed to escape alive. What a price we are paying! and continue to pay for the Iraq war. And it is so essential that people go back over and over again on all the circumstances that released this horror, not only into the region that was affected, but onto this planet. I think that this is the issue, in a way, where one should not be silent about this, and of fact, getting some accountability in relation to that tragedy in human affairs. The delegates who signed the 1949 conventions did so in a context in which the benefits of multilateralism were broadly understood, a multilateralism that is today fragile. These were years, if you like, that saw the establishment of the United Nations. There was even an idealistic background to the formation of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, who would completely spin away and rip from the United Nations itself and adopt an ideology of their own with consequences in several continents of the world. The General Agreement on Trades and Tariff and, of course, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Following the chaos of World War II, there was an appreciation then that in an interconnected world, a rules-based global order was preferable to dominance by physical force or coercion. A A world ruled by rights rather than might. Ireland, of course, remains deeply committed to that multilateral order. A multilateral order, which I repeat again, is now very fragile with some of the major powers, not only with the violent rhetoric, in fact, actually, but withdrawing funding, undermining the institutions and, in fact, making their work impossible. The challenges we face whether climate change, displacement or eradicating poverty and inequality are global in nature. And it is only by cooperating together that we can hope to address them meaningfully and successfully. Recently I've been speaking about the combining of three sources of consciousness. Ecological consciousness, the egalitarian movement, which is another form of consciousness, and people who respond also to the issue in relation to inclusion, the institutional consciousness that we need to combine together to give us, in fact, a platform to achieve a new paradigm. Ireland, as I have said, however, the commitment, as I've said, to multilateralism, I've already said, is no longer a given. 
and several states, including some of the most powerful actors globally, are repudiating this multilateral order, pursuing narrow neo-nationalist agendas. And this attitude, when I say neo-nationalist, I mean, it is not a nationalism that delivered emancipation or freedom, but one that is a resile, if you like, to a narrow view of the world where the stranger is seen as a threat. This attitude is as regrettable as it is myopic and ignorant of history. Furthermore, it is eroding the respect of international standards and laws, including the Geneva Conventions. For we have witnessed in recent years extremely worrying trends where countries or combatants have flouted the conventions of war, leading to growing extension of humanitarian needs, the suffering of populations, and an erosion of international trust and cooperation. These violations of the Geneva Conventions persist, often by the most powerful, with recurring incidents of illegal detention of suspects, torture that has been documented, practices that clearly contravene the accords in the third and fourth Geneva Conventions. Violations of international law are never acceptable. And may I say this very clearly, we must condemn such violations unequivocally whenever and wherever they occur, and we must all redouble our efforts to prevent them. An additional challenge we face is the change in the nature of conflict and war. Conflicts have become more protracted, as I have said, more urban and much more fragmented, particularly over the last decade, all of which creates significant challenges for humanitarian actors. And if I have said that they have become more protracted and so forth, there are also conflicts that are being used as surrogate wars with those with whom we have, if you like, the most polite diplomatic relations being the sources of armaments and being the sources of, if you like, dislodging vulnerable populations. And this surrogacy, as well, is a very, very serious new danger. We know, for instance, that the average length of a humanitarian crisis is now over nine years, according to the World Humanitarian Data and Trends 2018 analysis published by the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. This is an increase, as I have said, this nine years now is an increase from an average length of 5.2 years in 2014. Furthermore, the United Nations now informs us that one in every 70 people worldwide is caught up in a humanitarian crisis. That equates to 132 million people globally, across 42 countries, highlighting the growing scale of the challenge. More people have been displaced by conflict. The same United Nations analysis indicates that the number of forcibly displaced people rose from 59.5 million in 2014 to 68.5 million in 2017 and 71 million at the present time. Crisis exacerbate gender inequalities Girls in conflict settings are two and a half times more likely to be missing education than boys. And in just two years, between 2015 and 2017, the number of people experiencing crisis-level food insecurity or worse increased from 80 million to 124 million people. And we also must be very careful about the presentation of statistics on global poverty. It is sometimes suggested that we're winning a war against global poverty. We are not. We are, if you like, if you take the, the, the measure of $1.90 per day, 
which would be the equivalent of 25 people, depending on the minimum wage, let us say, in the, in the United Kingdom. But if you say, for example, 595, what you get is eight times what, in fact, some of the well-funded foundations are suggesting in their research. But the purpose of suggesting, if you like, that we're winning the war on global poverty is to say that the system that we have at the present time is one that can handle global poverty, when in fact it is, in fact, producing a crisis even on its own terms. As I've said, more people, the majority of, of humanitarian needs are occurring now in long-lasting crises in which there has been limited progress in addressing the root causes. And it is paramount that political solutions are now the focus of those actors that can realise positive change. Conflict will remain the main driver of humanitarian needs in 2019, but it is likely to be joined, if you like, by desertification, in turn which is feeding into conflicts in particular regions of the world. Food insecurity will remain a major concern, particularly in areas affected by conflict and climate-related hazards. And you know better than I that it is not simply a matter of transporting food, it is a matter of food sufficiency. I very much recently have been, if you like, promoting, if you like, the view of Ian Gough in his book Heat, Greed and Human Need. Yemen is once again the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. While humanitarian needs will remain at exceptionally high levels, in Syria, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Nigeria and South Sudan, and humanitarian needs have worsened significantly in Afghanistan owing to drought, political instability and an influx of returning refugees, as well as in Cameroon and Central African Republic due to an upsurge of conflict and violence. It would be remiss not to express my deep concern as President of Ireland too at events occurring in northern Syria and the unilateral intervention by Turkey in that area. The possibility of coercion or forced return of refugees is an appalling one and totally unacceptable. And may I also express in the strongest terms how an attempt at demographic change is not acceptable. I have, when I was last week and the week before, urged Turkey to seek an alternative negotiated approach, one that rejects military intervention and its resulting humanitarian distress. Unfortunately, such appeals that have come from other presidents, such as the group of Ariolas and others, have been ignored. And therefore, it is necessary for us to be vigilant in relation to respond to what is now taking place in relation to what is disgracefully called a safe zone. The fragmentation of conflicts creates significant challenges to those attempting to ensure compliance with international humanitarian law as competent groups become more decentralised, more dispersed and less subject to centralised authority. And the communications technology is being used at a faster rate all of the time by individual groups, non-state actors. The International Committee of the Red Cross has done outstanding work to understand these phenomena and offers some practical suggestions. And I do support the Roots of Restraint report it published in June last year. The report investigated how formal and informal norms condition the behaviour of soldiers and fighters, depending on the kind of armed organisation to which they belong. And it is important in relation to the training of soldiers that it isn't only a matter of, in fact, using your equipment properly, 
The issue in relation to peace and what is humanitarian concern is just as important. Ultimately, it provides a framework, roots of restraint, of analysis for humanitarian actors that will help them identify the approach best suited to a group's particular structure and socialisation mechanisms with the aim of promoting restraint during armed conflict. I've just come back from the Lebanon and I once said one would be proud of the sophistication of our Irish troops on the front line in, 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 in that area. Investing in conflict prevention is not only financially prudent, it is a matter of moral duty. However, investment should not just be narrowly defined in financial terms. It means dedicating time, resources, intelligence. I beg to repeat, to understanding the root causes of conflict and preventing their recurrence. A sufficient and effective investment in building peace will not only save lives, it will open all of the possibilities and opportunities for development and human flourishing that come with the dawning of peace and stability, which are so necessary if we are to accomplish the goals of that most remarkable representation of our shared global solidarity, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. All these issues hang together. We will soon mark, of course, too, the 50th anniversary of the entry into force of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and undertake its 10th review conference. And I'm really pleased of Ireland's role in developing the treaty, and I reiterate the government's commitment to a successful review conference in 2020. I hope that this conference will set a level of ambition for the total elimination of nuclear weapons, the only guarantee of our safety. And it is for this reason that Ireland is also a strong supporter of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The urban nature, I have said already, of modern conflict is deeply troubling as it places millions of civilians in the line of fire or forces them to flee their homes. Ireland is concerned about the use of explosive weapons in populated areas and it will host a conference in Dublin 2020 with the aim of agreeing a political declaration on explosive weapons in populated areas. So we must all be conscious then of the growing threat posed by climate change which can have a serious negative impact on livelihoods and resources resulting in a potential increase in existing tensions, fueling conflicts and forcing people to migrate which can add further pressure, exacerbate existing threats. And you know, at a conference that is discussing international law, it's a great concern, I must say, when I think of it, that having granted and acknowledged, for example, the marine rights of many of the, some of the, more, the, least, the least developed countries, they have no capacity to vindicate or protect their rights. And some of the fleets of some of the most powerful countries are not just, in fact, actually fishing illegally. They are eliminating species of fish, such as, for example, the coastal communities of Senegal, who can no longer go out from doing the, do the, do their coast, the coastal fishes. And we listen to that, we know that, but in fact we make very little progress internationally in, in, in addressing it. We are witnessing, too, the emergence, I think, of a whole range of new means and methods of war. Cyber, autonomous aerial vehicles, lethal autonomous weapon systems, all of which raise huge serious questions about the future of conflict. And so much of the discourse now is about preparing for participation in conflict, 
And we sometimes slide into that ourselves in some of our discussions in Europe, when in fact it should be about the elimination, the building of peace and the elimination of conflict. And our army, for example, is a defence forces. It is not aggressive forces. I think we have only begun to work through the implication of what new technologies will mean for the protection of societies or for the promotion of international humanitarian law. As President, I am glad that the Irish Government remains committed to a dialogue with the Irish Red Cross and the International Committee of the Red Cross on all of these issues. And while the character of armed conflict, as I've been describing it, is constantly changing with new challenges, the need to reinforce the continued relevance and importance of the conventions, which is what you're about, in contemporary conditions, is stronger than ever. Yes, we must commemorate the conventions and the principles and values on which they are based, but we must also reflect on these to anticipate the next decade and beyond, ensuring that the international community is working on and becoming prepared for the new challenges and risks that lie ahead, especially as regards the ongoing undermining of the conventions by an often powerful minority. For each of these challenges, the threats to multilateralism, the changing nature of conflict, the emergence of new drivers of conflict, such as climate change, the emergence of new technologies, we must remain guided by the central abiding principle of a shared humanity, a shared vulnerability, a commitment to protecting humanity and upholding the rules of international humanitarian law. That is as relevant today as it was 70 years ago. And I hope that Ireland will continue to be a champion of your efforts. But humanitarian actions must not any longer be served as sufficient responses to crises that are political in their origins. Humanitarian action is not a substitute for political dialogue and mediation. Nor is the courageous work of UN peacekeepers who serve us, as I have said, including there are many Irish men and women over the past 60 years whom I salute earlier to, who have saluted earlier in my speech. United Nations peace support operations <coughs> save countless lives, but there can only ever be but one element of a comprehensive response. Thus, commemorating 70 years of the Geneva Conventions is not a celebration must never be a celebration of militarism, nor a valorisation of martial spirit, but a simple recognition of our common humanity as we try to provide basic protection for those unfortunately caught up in our armed struggles. And we must recognise that with war comes not only physical and mental destruction, but an enduring climate of fear, often made all the more terrifying by the perverse use of new science and technology and industrial power in the pursuit of mutual destruction. And thus, as we assemble today to mark the anniversary of the Geneva Conventions, we do so in a spirit of solidarity and compassion, and we do so in a world still sadly subject to war, and the rumours of war, a, war, a world that still seems, if I may borrow from the words of Martin Luther King, from another time and another place. What he said was, a world gone mad on war, a world in which more than at any other time so many people are subject to atrocities, to famine, to starvation, to displacement and exile. And even as we in these first decades of the 21st century have the material capacity to abolish all forms of human poverty, to alleviate all unnecessary suffering, we are still devoting so much of our creativity, our craft, our intelligence and our resources 
not to the preservation or achievement of peace, but to the prosecution of and preparation for war. We must remember close to home how easily the powers of Europe, with all their centuries of scholarship, philosophy and learning, cast it all aside and fell into enduring and terrible enmity. And we must affirm that solidarity amongst peoples and nations. It is not only a moral necessity, but that it is fragile and that it must be asserted again and again as our shared aspiration. We must remember that peace will only ever be established and can only be sustained when it is based upon the principles of justice, dignity and mutual respect. Let us then on this day rededicate ourselves to the cause of peace and the support of those institutions which promote and preserve peace. Let us recall the great spirit that animated Europe in the months and years after World War II, the spirit that gave birth to the modern Geneva Conventions and the United Nations. And let us try and recover the enthusiasm in the discourse for an adequate discussion on peace. Let us recapture that rare spirit of mutual solidarity that recognises our common humanity, our shared if differing vulnerabilities, and let us once again resolve to build together, Oslo Verkele, together, a more just and equal world, free from the terrors of war. Mila Buikas, Garamila Mahake, thank you.